Vact empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Vact to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty, and rewards points and gift cards. Go to VACKT.com and start treating your digital assets just like cash. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. You need to check this out right now. A revolutionary tech startup has created a way for you to convert your Bitcoin and Ethereum into shares of real, tangible art. Think paintings by Banksy, Picasso, and more. You know, like an NFT, but in real life. It's such a game changer that they just became New York's latest billion dollar unicorn. Just go to masterworks.io slash scoop and see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today on the other side of the microphone is a very good friend of mine from the VC world, Adam Goldberg, co-founder at Standard Crypto. So Adam, you were a partner at Lightspeed Ventures and you've been in the crypto market for a while. Standard Crypto may not be as well known as some other players in the space, but you're pretty sizable and the portfolio is pretty impressive. Uh, walk us through your journey into crypto and what, what you've got cooking at Standard Crypto. Sure. So I, I guess, uh, you know, as you probably know better than most, people in crypto tend to frame their background in terms of how they got into the space. I had a fairly non-traditional path to crypto, but I, I guess that's actually pretty traditional in, in our sector. So I grew up near San Francisco in a suburb of Oakland. And I actually was homeschooled until I was 10. Then I went to community college and eventually UC Berkeley when I was 13 to study math. And I got really excited about something called number theory. It's one of the purest forms of mathematics. It's, it's basically studying numbers themselves, things like primes and, and so on. And you know, there's a mathematician, Gauss, who, who said mathematics is the queen of the sciences and, and number theory is the queen of mathematics. So it turns out that if you don't want to go into academia, there aren't a lot of career opportunities for you. And I, I ended up finding, you know, one really salient application of, of number theory, which was crypto. And back in the day, that actually meant cryptography. And it was through this interest that I learned about Bitcoin and got excited about the space. I also spent some time after that at the NSA and ultimately ended up going to Stanford to study computer science as another academic angle to the sector. It's actually really fortuitous. I, I wound up spending a lot of time with people who were in and around the blockchain space too. You know, a couple names come to mind, uh, you know, Ronil Rumberg and, and Forrest Browning, who, as you probably know, are the founders of Audius. They were my classmates. Alex Atala, one of the founders of OpenSea, was also a, a year above us. Um, and, you know, even more strangely, my advisor, Hector Garcia Molina, who unfortunately passed away about two years ago, was actually also the undergraduate advisor for Goon from Avalanche, you know, different school and, and different time period. Um, he was also Sergey Brin's advisor, but that's a whole different topic. But, you know, I, I wanted to experience company building. 
after my time there, and I, I took a detour out of crypto to be the first product manager at a company called Rubric. It's a secondary storage company, you know, one of the fastest growing enterprise companies of all time. And I, I learned a lot about, you know, enterprise sales and, and go to market there. And, and that's been really salient lately within crypto as it manifests in what we're calling B2D sales, business to DAO sales. And we, we actually helped broker the first such deal in, in on-chain governance between two portfolio projects, uh, Aave and Gauntlet. And we can maybe get into that a little bit later. But to, to kind of close it out, I ended up joining Lightspeed and, and led the blockchain and crypto investing there for a number of years. And then my, my partner, Alok, who used to be at, at Benchmark doing something similar, and I launched Standard Crypto back in 2019 with the goal of supporting entrepreneurs both on the traditional company building side but also on the crypto native side. I know that you've been very active across a number of different verticals in the space. You mentioned Gauntlet, one of the investments you made, which is a really interesting play in governance. How do you sort of think about the firm's mandate, right? Because crypto is so broad and it touches so many different verticals. What falls under the scope of standard crypto? I would say that we're really open-minded in this respect because when you've been in crypto for a long time, you realize that if you overfit on any particular time period, you miss the next set of opportunities, right? And there's there's sort of a saying that we, we want to be where the ball is going, not where it is today. But, you know, we broadly have categorized things into three very broad areas, infrastructure, networks, and apps. Infrastructure could be something like financial markets infrastructure, you know, things like matrix port or, you know, things like Tagomi are similar. And technology infrastructure is, is more about, you know, how do we build better blockchains that support this next generation of applications? And we invested in off-chain labs on that side of the house. You know, then networks themselves, of course, you know, this is a very, very broad category, everything from DeFi to a lot of things going on with DAOs. But, you know, that could be like an investment in Aave or an investment in, in Friends with Benefits. And then for applications, you know, we've, we've been really active in both social and gaming. So some names that come to mm. mind there are things like Audius or Axie Infinity or, you know, Dslow, formerly known as BitCloud. I definitely want to pick your brain on that space before we kind of get into some of the themes shaping the market right now. Can I ask you about a little bit more about your past? How does your experience as sort of a, you know, a math wonder kid and as someone who worked at the NSA shape your investment processes today? Do you find yourself getting a little more granular on the math of what some of these firms are working on than maybe a typical investor in a company? So I think this part may be a little bit counterintuitive, but I, I'd say it almost corrects in the opposite direction. You know, when we're investing in an early stage company or early stage network, a lot of what we're getting really excited about is the team and you know, their ability to execute and, and build a community. And as a result, I think in many cases, we're a little bit less focused on the underlying math itself, because, you know, a lot of that is not necessarily going to be in place day one. And it's it's about, you know, an, an evolution, a line, not a dot, if you will, in, in that sense. I would definitely be a little bit nervous if I had you uh, looking under the hood. You'd definitely find the holes. No, but that's that's not our job, right? It's it's our job to be a service provider to entrepreneurs, right? And, and support them in whatever it is they want support on. If that's something they want support on, we're more than capable of doing it. But, you know, we we really aren't there to mandate what they need help with. It's, it's what they want help with. 
that could span a, a number of different things, right? If, if it's more on the traditional company building side, it, it could be about executive hiring or helping, you know, analyze their network effects. On the crypto native side, it, it could be more about getting involved in governance or helping think through smart contract audits or contributing engineering resources. The way you're kind of describing the firm's position in the market reflects something that I've noticed and we've talked about, which is this flipped relationship between companies looking for capital and investment firms that have the capital. Typically, the demand comes from the companies who need capital to build out. But in this market right now in crypto, it's the folks with capital who need to deploy. The demand is on the other side. And so it's kind of created this interesting dynamic where VCs and other types of investors have to add a lot more value than maybe they used to. Well, look, I, I think we view it that we have to kind of earn our seat every day. We've always viewed ourselves as as service providers to entrepreneurs. If you're just capital, that's really not differentiated in today's market. But I, I think that kind of what that means as a firm and, and how you kind of pull lessons from the, so to speak, old world into the new world is really, really important. And you know, we, we want to be able to be a one-stop shop for entrepreneurs on, on everything spanning across those two horizons, right? Whether it's with Ave, we you know are, are one of the 10 guardians on on their you know multi-sig in case something goes wrong with the smart contract. But on the flip side, for something like an open we helped with hiring their COO. We really want to span everything that an entrepreneur could want help with. And, and that's kind of what you have to do to stay relevant in this market in 2021. So let's maybe focus in on the NFT and metaverse space. When we were in New York together, it was right before I kind of caught the bug and had fully committed weeks and weeks of time and energy exploring these different worlds, going to the Doge Temple. Listeners of the show are red-pilled on the Doge Temple in crypto voxels. Tell me how you think about that space and where the opportunities are. How are you making bets there? Yeah. So, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, right, we we sort of view as investors, it's our job to be where the ball's going, not where it is today. NFTs and the metaverse are, are two really, really exciting areas to us. We've been involved in NFTs for quite a long time and have even owned NFTs for multiple years in our fund. And, you know, we're, we're not you know, yet ready to publicly share what what names or projects those are, but I'm sure they'll be very familiar to you. But with with respect to the metaverse, I think that, you know, we can kind of zoom out a little bit. I, I think when you think about web 1.0 and 2.0 and, and 3.0, they really rhyme more than being perfect analogs. And, you know, the metaverse has the opportunity to be something like that as well. It has a lot of really new and interesting intrinsic properties, and it's it's not going to look like just a kind of analogous version of the past. I think if, if you look at, you know, gaming and its evolution from Pong to Mario on Nintendo 64 to Halo to Farmville to Axie Infinity, each of these things succeeded for different reasons. You know, we're, we're not kind of this for that investors where we're, we're looking for the next Uber for Hex or, or the next Axie Infinity. It's about learning lessons from the past and, and seeing what's unique about the present and future. And I think with the metaverse, Something that's really, really interesting is we've, we've seen this trend where now, you know, game economies and, and game assets, and this is now extending beyond gaming, is quite separate from game mechanics. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities here to capture value from these new types of productive assets. We think there'll be opportunities that look like holding companies, you know, a, a Berkshire Hathaway of, of the metaverse, if you will, that 
are cash flow generating and, and hold a number of these productive assets. You know, in the old world, it used to be businesses, but now assets themselves can be productive. And I think when you sort of think about NFTs, they, they really can be so many things, right? It started as art and became art and culture and, you know, gaming economy assets. And we're, we're seeing that rapidly expand to, to even more things. So we've, we've been active in, in the metaverse and the NFT market broadly, but, you know, we're, we're really open to what the use cases can be, but we're really excited about what we've seen so far. I think that you have to be open because it's just such a broad category. What did you make of the Facebook news, their sort of announcement that it looks like they're going to dedicate 50% or something around that? That's not a perfect number, but one division of the firm is going to be dedicated to virtual worlds. Yeah, I think that it's incredible validation, right? I mean, you you have companies that have really, really successful businesses today that are are fearful of a future where they may be disintermediated. And kind of exactly how that manifests relative to what we're seeing in sort of the, the so to speak, crypto version of the metaverse, we're not yet sure. But it's it's really, really exciting and compelling that that you're seeing some of the largest social network companies in the world publicly refocus to this area. You know, I mean, if, if you think about kind of that gaming analogy, right? I, I mentioned Farmville. Obviously, that was, you know, really, really closely related to Facebook. So, you know, there, there'll be an interesting question of of kind of what is the, you know, metaverse's relationship to Facebook, or I, I suppose I should say meta, and kind of what types of developer platforms may be available in the future. You know, there's a unique problem that a lot of these gaming platforms in the blockchain gaming space have, which is you have to ensure that there's a robust economy underpinning the game, but also make the game fun. So it introduces a secondary problem for developers to tackle. It's not just how do you keep the game fun, but also how do you sustain incentives that make the economy and the merry-go-round keep going? How do you think about that juxtaposition? Well, I think fun is a really abused and overloaded word when it comes to video games. When you kind of look at that evolution to, say, mobile gaming, for instance, or, or what we used to call pay to win, there was a lot of the same criticisms we used to hear, right? A lot of the same takes of, hey, that's not fun. People are just paying to win. There's, there's no skill in it. There's no sense of accomplishment. But fun is very different things to, to different people. And I think that just as there's some non-intuitive or counterintuitive dynamics in the pay to win era, it may help to reframe certain parts of, of play to earn differently, right? When you look at something like Axie Infinity, there's a really, really large number of people throughout the world now depending on that as a source of income. And I think that it's, it's really unique in that you're able to combine an economy where people across the world are able to be productive with just a phone or, or just a computer, along with the collectible aspect and, and the gaming aspect on a, a different side of that platform. So, you know, I, I think you could say that it's definitely fun, but, you know, fun is, is maybe the wrong thing to optimize on when, when you're building such a rich economy that's enabling people to support themselves. Would you say that being an Uber driver is fun? You raise a really good point, which is there's a element of play to earn where that incentive aspect is more important, overshadows this idea of, of what fun is. And I was speaking to another venture capitalist who kind of described the phenomenon that we saw play out with Axie Infinity in the Philippines as being tied to this idea that people just don't not show up for work. They're going to come at the end of the day, similar to the analogy you're making with Uber. 
but how sustainable is that? And and what can a project do once the sort of interest begins to wane? Yeah, I, I think that you know, it's, it's a very, very complicated topic. One thing that's really, really encouraging is, you know, when, when you kind of look at, I guess, the fun discussion, another different way to frame it is, is that a sense of ownership is fun for people. You know, people who were early scholars in the, you know, manager scholar paradigm on Axie had really, really meaningful financial outcomes. And they were able to have exposure to the upside of a game really for the first time in their lives. And I think what it exactly takes to, you know, continue to to enable a game of that scale to grow is really hard to say with precision. But I think that one thing people are are underrating in many ways is this new source of IP that has been created. Axie is not just a game, it's a new movement. It's sort of like a new generation of Pokemon or of, of Angry Birds. And it's possible that we'll see, you know, movies or, or other types of experiences built around that IP. And that's really what grows and sustains a user base over time. Right, you, you think about kind of Pokemon and, and sort of all the iterations on, on all the different consoles and, and Pokemon Go. That's a, a, a really, really different discussion than, you know, how do we enable an individual game to maintain an effective LTV to CAC ratio and, and the right customer acquisition chains? When you look at the landscape, though, does it seem, how do you value something like that? Does it seem frothy? Is it difficult to think about valuations for something that is less about, you know, a technology or a business, but more cultural. And the TAM is is pretty big, right? So it's kind of might be difficult to wrap your head around. I think that, look, with with opportunities like this, it's hard to know what what the TAM is. And, you know, we're we're not necessarily underwriting it on the basis of a TAM. I, I think if you looked at, you know, Uber to kind of go back to that analogy, the TAM at the Series A was was quite small, right? People mm. really couldn't imagine what it looked like to transition from a model of owning a car to relying on strangers on the internet you summon through an application to move around. And I think, right, if, if you look at something like Axie Infinity through that same lens, you you may be handicapping it the same way. That said, in, in today in crypto, this is more of a general comment than about any specific project. There are a lot of cases in which you see success really being priced in because of all the exuberance for the space. And you know, that's one thing that that sort of led us to being a little bit more focused on on seed and series A as standard crypto to be involved in, in you know very early supporters of, of opportunities at a you know very early stage. Back is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Back puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send or spend them using Back. Get started today and get it together with Back. Sign up at backbakkt.com. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. 
A new application of decentralized finance just unlocked a multi-trillion dollar industry. How big? How about $6 trillion big? High net worth investors have used this often overlooked alternative investment to build multi-generational wealth. The investment is contemporary blue chip art, and this billion dollar unicorn lets you invest in art similar to investing in a company's stock. Masterworks.io offers fractional ownership of real paintings by artists Think, Banksy, Buscott, and Warhol. So instead of needing tens of millions, you can invest tens of thousands. Some of their offerings have sold out in hours, but you can get priority access today by going to masterworks.io scoop. That's masterworks.io scoop. See important disclosures at masterworks.io disclaimer. You've made a number of investments across the space. We mentioned Gauntlet, but there's also Matrix Port, quite a number of others. I want to zero in on governance, right? We've had Tarun on the show. It's a really interesting project that's looking to de-risk DeFi to an extent with an automated platform. As a VC, how important is participating in governance, helping projects wade through these difficult, murky decisions? Yeah, I think it's it's a really, really interesting topic. In our experience, the biggest value add that a venture investor can provide with respect to governance is helping get the brightest people who don't have the means to participate in governance directly involved in development of you know community and, and features and so on. That's what we do with our delegation program. So, you know, for for large positions we hold things like Ave. We partner with a number of different university groups and, and their blockchain clubs, groups like Stanford, groups like Berkeley, groups like the University of Pennsylvania. It's a balance between, you know, guiding the community, but also being a good steward. We, we want to guide the community as ourselves, as standard crypto, if, if our experience is helpful, but we, we never want to mandate anything. For instance, in Ave governance, there were a lot of proposals early on about liquidity mining incentives. And you know, we, we wanted to weigh in because we, we viewed that as, as CAC, customer acquisition cost. And we wanted to help the community find ways to you know, measure that, measure the results and, and see what should be doubled down on and, and what should be shifted away from. And we ended up proposing a, a framework for you know, measuring and monitoring that. But in, in other cases, we've been a little bit more hands-off. But you know, it's really about getting amazing engineers from these different universities who, who don't have the millions of dollars you may need to make proposals involved. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting solution. Walk the audience through kind of how you built that out. I mean, you, you found a channel, tapped into it, and it solves a really important problem, which is there is not enough brain power going into governance, enough attention being paid to it, and, and that results in just not always the best decisions being made, to put it fairly simply. So how did you spring up this university thing? What what does it look like? It really stems back to the concept of a protocol politician, which you know we, we first learned about from you know Kevin Nielsen, who's the founder of Boardroom Labs, which is another portfolio company. It's it's sort of like a you know broadridge for decentralized governance, if you will. And protocol politicians are are people who are really active in different decentralized governance communities and, and that they're they're seeking votes to be delegated to them. And we we realize you look at all these different blockchain clubs at, at top universities who've historically been really active on the consulting side with, with different projects, 
as governance was handed over to a variety of different DAOs, in some cases, they were losing their ability to be really active community members because there was now a, a minimum threshold for number of tokens in order to make on-chain proposals or to be influential in voting. And, you know, we, we kind of looked at the holdings we have as a fund and, and people who are hungry and able to be contributors and said, why don't we match these up? You know, why don't we split up our voting power to add to the decentralization of the network, but also to enable these, you know, students who are really, really active in the projects anyway. And, you know, we, we started by doing it with Ava and, and we're, we're in the process of, of adding additional schools and, and additional groups and, and additional projects. But it's been something that we've been really, really excited about to date. And, and we've, we've seen really, really high activity from all these different schools. And it's been everything from voting on proposals to you know helping shape them to, in, in some cases, actually making proposals. I wonder at what point, like, the vast majority of input on Ave governance is going to derive from college-age students? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to predict that. But I, I think when you look at kind of the proxy shareholder voting processes you see with public companies, there, there is a, a fairly high concentration in terms of how these decisions are made. And what that looks like exactly in the decentralized world, we don't know. But we've seen that, you know, these, these uh, university blockchain clubs are really, really excellent stewards of these, of these projects. How do you think about the benefits of governance versus centralized organizations, do you think that one day everything will be operated as a DAO? Well, I, I think there's different answers for, for different use cases, but it's definitely the direction that we're heading in. And, and I think one of the most powerful considerations are when you look at you know marketplace businesses or, or platforms whose rules have changed over time, you know, whether that's kind of how the App Store model worked with respect to Facebook or, you know, how some participants in marketplaces like Uber have had complaints. When you have a network that's owned by its participants, the rules can't change without the community being on board. And that's what makes us feel like crypto networks are, are the hardest thing to disrupt that we've ever seen in, in humanity in that they evolve with their communities as things change and, and shift over time. And we've seen it in the amount of capital that's moving into the space. I mean, people are, are, are seeing the opportunity. We've reported on at least, you know, a dozen new fund launches over the past few months. What does the introduction of all of this new capital mean for the market? I think we've found that a lot of the new entrants are most focused on scaled capital opportunities, you know, things that have really, really meaningful revenue inflection on the company side or, you know, the, the analog for, for things in DeFi or, or crypto networks when you look at it on a protocol basis. And that has really led us as standard crypto to believe that we want to refocus on early stage seed and series A investing because that's where we feel like entrepreneurs are the least effectively served today. But, you know, we're, we're really, really happy that when you look at, you know, today versus three or four years ago, we don't worry as much about follow on funding. The best projects don't have trouble fundraising like they, they used to in, in a different era. Speaks to the maturation of the space, how much we've, you know, we've matured over the past few years. What do you think is the biggest impediment right now to the further proliferation of crypto? I don't know that I'd call it an impediment. But I, I think when you look at the thought process of a lot of great crypto entrepreneurs, there's there's always that 
nagging anxiety in the back of their head about regulatory uncertainty. I think that they always wonder, will they be able to stay in the geography that they're in or, or will they have to move over time? Ultimately, crypto will overcome that just as it's overcome every other challenge in its, in its history. But I, I think that having a clearer regulatory framework in you know, geographies that want to support and foster crypto will be greatly, greatly beneficial. Yeah, the, the limbo in which we found stablecoin is unnerving for some people. Does that keep you up at night? I think a lot of things keep us up at night just because of how much goes on in space, <laughs> you know, but I would say that at their heart, regulators want to do the right thing. And I think that the, the space is really complicated and, and really like nothing anyone's ever seen before. And, you know, finding that right blend of sort of the old world regulation and, and bespoke new world regulation will be challenging, but I, I do think we'll get there as a space. But, you know, the, the uncertainty really is just a distraction for, for entrepreneurs and, and builders. But the good news is clarity is, is progressively coming over time. I certainly hope so. Although the headlines are fun to cover and follow. It's always nice ringing up some of the DC sources that I have to find out what the latest drama is. With clarity will come less of those fun stories. So what should we expect out of Standard Crypto over the next, let's say, six months? What do you guys have cooking and um, you expect deal making to ramp up? What should we anticipate? Yeah, I think we've we've been highly, highly active. You know, there's there's a number of opportunities that we're super, super excited to announce in the near future. We've been really active around social and gaming in particular. But you know, we're we're also in the process of of growing our team. We're only six people today and we, we're looking to add across the investment team, research and, and engineering team. So, you know, to, to all those out there and and Frank's audience. You know, please do reach out to us if, if that's something that could be of interest to you. We see this a lot across crypto VC land, firms trying to add to their research or content capabilities. They want to add to their own technical capabilities to have folks who actually can build this stuff. What is the ROI on, on some of those more peripheral roles for the firm? We find that more than anything, it helps to have a cross-disciplinary background as a member of an investment team, right? Whether your specialization is legal or engineering or, or research, that helps you build credibility with entrepreneurs, but also helps you build and bring a unique perspective to an investment team meeting. That said, we, we also think that the role of a crypto VC does look different than what traditional venture looks like. And, you know, having a higher level of involvement with projects and, you know, sometimes investing even looks differently, right? If, if you're investing in a DAO, that closing process can look quite different from a traditional execution of a, a share purchase agreement. It may be something that goes through on-chain governance or, you know, if you're purchasing NFTs, you have to interact with smart contracts. And, you know, whether that's more internally facing or, or sort of on the behalf of our portfolio or the community at large, those are things that can be really, really additive. You mentioned NFTs. How do you approach specific NFTs themselves? Like, obviously, it's very different from investing in an equity raise for a company. There are different boxes you can check on whether you think a company is an investable opportunity. But those boxes are going to look a hell of a lot different with an NFT, right? I mean, aesthetics play a role into that and other things, things that are maybe less quantifiable. You do have a good sense of style, though. I will I will give you that. So 
your brain isn't a hundred percent math based. You you have some flair, but how how does your decision making process work for something that's very different from what a traditional investment firm might be doing? I'm still envious of uh, your mustache, Frank. But uh, <laughs> you know, you know I, I would say that our approach to NFTs really in in the beginning was most focused on platforms. So we're investors in OpenSea and, and Foundation. And in terms of kind of how we think about individual NFT collections, and in some sense, it's really about investing in things that are lindy, right? Early projects that have reached kind of a cultural zeitgeist, whether it's something like CryptoPunks as you know the first major NFT project or you know other things around gaming. The fact that they've existed to date and had this type of traction is, is the best indicator that they're going to continue to be relevant and, and be important. And, and I think when you look at, you know, the the sort of different types of NFTs that are out there, there's there's things that are more kind of artistic in nature. There's there's things that are more kind of cultural in nature. There's things that are, are generative that you may compare to, you know, Rothko works. And ultimately speaking, we're not art investors. We're, we're investing in things that, that have communities. And, and that's kind of what's informed us with a lot of these investments. When you say that these things, are they more Lindy than and anything else in crypto. I mean, isn't sticking power kind of always important? The sort of maybe that's the reason why Bitcoin is, you know, has yet to be usurped by anything else, even though you might argue some of its characteristics are not as superior. It's hard to make comparisons across different facets of crypto. So I think, you know, crypto punks we would view as the most lindy type of NFTs. You know, comparing crypto punks to Bitcoin doesn't really seem fair because those are just two very different types of things. Bitcoin is a non-sovereign store of wealth and digital gold and all the sort of things you've you've heard before. But, you know, punks feel more like a, a new community-owned type of IP and, you know, have really important historical significance as, you know, one of the most important early NFT projects. Um, but, you know, it, I guess with respect to Bitcoin, there are a lot of analogs in that Bitcoin continues to exist with importance because it has existed with importance. And, you know, I, I think when you kind of look at what Bitcoin adoption looks like as digital gold, you know, when you kind of look 20, 30 years out, I think it's very likely that, you know, most central banks will hold it. And I think not all central banks will hold gold. You obviously are paying attention to everything that's going on in the space. It's something that you have to do to stay on top of deal flow, to elbow your way into deals. Is that becoming more and more difficult with this C of capital that's flooding into the space? It's never historically easy to work with the best entrepreneurs, no matter what the space is or, or sort of what the theme is. But what we always tell entrepreneurs is that we're happy to work with whoever they want to work with. We just want to make sure that you know we're able to be involved in an impactful way that you know really helps them both on the, the crypto native side as, as well as the company building side. But you know we don't view ourselves as being sharp elbowed. We find that especially in crypto and, and especially, you know, with sort of the, the ethos of decentralization that it often can be beneficial to have a number of different investors, whether that's funds or, or individuals involved in a project. And we really like to foster that. What do you think is your most contrarian position right now? Well, if I told you, I don't think it'd be contrarian anymore. <laughs> All right. So what do you think maybe is the, what do you think is maybe one of the most overhyped stances being made in the crypto world? I don't know that we're ready to write it off completely yet, but I, I think that enterprise blockchain has always been something that 
we've wanted to get excited about, but have, have sort of yet to see meaningful inflection in. And I think in, in many cases, it, it feels like these sort of enterprise blockchains are, are really just a, a slightly new spin on a database. And a lot of the problems being solved by them really aren't, aren't the same as, as what we're seeing in, so to speak, public blockchain. But, you know, we, we remain open to hearing about different approaches in, in that part of the world, but just haven't yet had something really get us excited yet. It's pretty funny how in 2018, 2019, that was such a big focus. And a lot of the plays by the big banks, you think of things like Quorum, so much focus was paid to that. And no one thought that we'd have peer-to-peer exchanges, lending, which at the time had zero volume. I mean, I used to use the word paltry all the time, describing the volumes of platforms like, oh my goodness, AirSwap, if you remember that one. Yeah. What changed? What kind of re-energized decentralized finance and de-energized the enterprise world? I think that those things are not necessarily mutually causal of, of one another. But you know, when you think about kind of what really drove DeFi forward, when you look at what DeFi is on its face, it's it's really a, a new type of marketplace that happens to be financial in nature. And, and when you look at marketplace business historically, they're traditionally operated by a trusted middleman, right? Whether that is Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, or, or the New York Stock Exchange. And that trusted middleman is what people you know, view as a brand that lets them believe that the transaction will happen, right? Whether that's buying or, or selling stock or getting a ride or, or having your hotel room there when you wait for it. When you look at why marketplace businesses lend themselves well to being built on top of the blockchain, it's because you're able to establish trust more directly. All of the mm-hmm. rules of the marketplace are written out in, in code and, and code is law. And that means that ultimately, both the supply and demand side can get a better economic deal, but you can also accrue value into a token and use that to incent early participants on the platform. So when you look at kind of why DeFi took off, a, a lot of that stems from the fact that finance and financial marketplaces are just one of the easiest applications to build in terms of these new marketplaces built on chain. And you you look at at sort of the proliferation of things like lending and and trading and yield aggregation and, and synthetic assets, that was just something that found really, really great product market fit early on. Yeah, certainly has some more room to grow. Adam Goldberg at Standard Crypto. Thanks for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Frank. Where can our listeners learn more about what you guys are working on? Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Standard Crypto, or you can reach out to us directly on on Twitter. Our DMs are open. Nice. There you go. You heard it here first. The DMs are open. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with you again with another exciting guest very soon. Stay breezy. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.